if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed. And hour number two is now underway at eight minutes past ten. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday, the 29th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord 2020. Debate night in Cleveland. What do you say we get it started right now with Peter Kersenau? Uh, I, I slipped Kersenau and called uh, uh, Peter Navarro Peter Kersenau last segment. So, uh, <laughs> what a demotion for him. <laughs> yeah, we had the White House, trade, White House trade advisor on talking about the uh, Lordstown uh, Motors vehicle that they announced yesterday. But, Pete, you and I'm going to talk about many other things. Peter Kersenow is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, Cleveland attorney, best-selling author, as well as a columnist for the National Review. Pete, good to have you, my friend. So, it's great um, to be here, Bob. I want to I want to start with because we have a lot to do. So I want to start with uh, with Amy Coney Barrett. I, I I cannot believe what I heard. Well, I shouldn't say that because there's really no depth to which the left will not stoop, I guess. So this should be very believable in reality. But I want you to listen to uh, Sean Hannity describing uh, what the latest attack on the uh, Supreme Court justice nominee um, looks like. CBS News contributor, so-called professor under fire for actually suggesting that Judge Barrett, other white parents adopt black children to use as, quote, props. Wow. Now, the good news is conservatives, Republicans, the Trump White House are all standing strong. They are ready to do anything and everything to defend Judge Barrett from the endless lies and smears and slander and besmirchment and character assassination that the left is deploying in her direction. Peter, the Barrett's a very happy, successful, uh, you know, well-to-do family with five children of their own, one of which, by the way, happened to be a Down syndrome child that they detected uh, prenatal and, of course, being pro-life believers uh, in the uh, the wonder and in the, in the uh, incredible glory of all children and the value of all human life. Of course, uh, they have their five children. In 2005, the Barretts adopted a child who was starving in Haiti. In 2010, after the Haiti earthquake, they saw so many more children who were going to starve to death. They adopted another one. Fifteen years, now ten years since that one, um, she's being uh, appointed to or nominated for the Supreme Court and being accused of choosing black babies to adopt as props. A little diversity to color up the Christmas, the family Christmas photo. 
I, uh, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. I, I am so disgusted by this process. I am so disgusted by the toxicity of the Supreme Court nomination process now and the confirmation process. It never, ever, ever used to be this way before Bork. It has gotten ten times worse since Bork and since Clarence Thomas, Pete. And I'm rambling a little bit here because I'm so frustrated by it. What are, you, what are your thoughts on what you're hearing? Well, I concur with everything you said. I couldn't say it any better. It it was when I heard that, and I think isn't that uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, you're referring to Ibram Kendi, uh, his quote. And Kendi is the guy who came up with anti-racism, uh, which is the most racist thing you've ever wanted to see. He's a best-selling author, best-selling. Uh, I mean, it, it's a real commentary on how toxic our culture has become when this individual is a best-selling author. But he is, you know, lionized and paraded around all these institutions to talk about anti-racism. As I said, we can have an entire segment just on that topic. It, it really is the uh, epitome of racism. But it is uh, not uncommon for many on the left to think this way. That's how twisted and perverse our uh, culture has become and our political discourse has become. I think almost everyone in your audience, when they viewed the nomination process in the Rose Garden or or saw photos of the family, uh, thought that, hey, this is amazing. This is an amazing family. More importantly, it's a normal family. I know most families don't have, you know, adopted kids from Haiti, but everything about them was quintessentially American. And everything about Amy Coney Barrett bespoke a happy, well-adjusted family who is enormously successful by dint of, yes, they have talent and hard work. And it's a traditional family, as bizarre as that sounds. Again, not too many traditional families have uh, adopted kids from Haiti, but they do everything in what used to be the kind of normal Ozzie and Harriet way. And I know the left can't stand that kind of formula, but it's the formula that made America great and America work. We're not going to abandon it to a bunch of leftists who are just, think about how unhappy you have to be to criticize a family like that, or to criticize Amy Coney Barrett. It wasn't too long ago when in the trajectory of feminism, Amy Amy Coney Barrett would be at the very pinnacle because she did all the things that the feminists say women can do. You can have it all. Well, you can have it all if you are Amy Coney Barrett with an incredible amount of talent, an incredibly supportive family and husband. Uh, But she did all those things that feminists say you can do. She went to law school, number one in her class, had uh, a lot of very challenging and uh, impressive jobs. And now she's got all these these kids who are doing, by all accounts, extremely well. Um, it does tell you, you're right, uh, we have fallen to such a low level in our public discourse, and it's shameful. I'm hopeful we can retrieve some semblance of what America used to be by virtue of Amy Coney Barrett being confirmed to the Supreme Court and a rebuke to this poisonous ideology that we're seeing it's being played out in the Amy Coney Barrett uh, nomination process, but also in the presidential process. If we could send a, the, the clearest rebuke we can send is to rebuke all of these leftist candidates out here who want to take us to a very troubling place. So um, anyway, one one point I'd like to make, just for perspective. I mean, I've given you perspective on on Donald Trump, my view on Donald Trump and why I'm so supportive of him and how I changed 
my perception of him when I first met him. Uh, this is for your listeners. I know all of them probably support Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, but there's, uh, I'll just give you kind of a, an, another kind of left field observation. When I was first interviewing my current special assistant, special counsel to the Civil Rights Commission, uh, this was seven years ago. She's been a phenomenal assistant ever since, and I don't know why she's working for me because she was at the top of her class at, yes, Notre Dame Law School. And so, you know, you're asking all kinds of the usual standard interviewing questions, and one of the questions I asked was, you know, who's your best professor? And without hesitation, and I didn't know who this person was, she said, Amy Coney Barrett. She said, hands down, she should be on the Supreme Court one day. No one ever heard of her. She's a professor at Notre Dame. You know, there's a thousand law professors throughout the country. Uh, she's just one of them. And then, you know, about five years later, I see that she gets nominated for the Seventh Circuit. Well, first, her name was kind of thrown around in the mix in terms of the, the Supreme Court vacancies that I think it was Neil Gorsuch finally took. But nonetheless, she was confirmed to the Seventh Circuit, and I remembered that. And my assistant's just unbridled enthusiasm about this individual who was obscure at the time. Um, she described her as not just being the most brilliant person uh, she had in law school, but just a kind and just almost like a perfect human being. She sounded too good to be true. And again, the, the, Amy Coney Barrett was on no one's radar, radar screen at the time. She was not being considered for any position. And I think that is maybe one of the best descriptions and most reliable descriptions of Amy, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett when there's nothing on the line that may cause somebody to perhaps enhance or detract from the true record of that individual. So anyway, just an observation for your listening audience. Pete, I want to respond to that with two things. First of all, I didn't give Ibram Kendi enough credit here by just kind of describing his tweet. I think his two tweets, actually, it's, it bled over into a second tweet. Um, should be heard in their entirety to really appreciate the, uh, the, the vile nature of them. Some white colonizers, because, and this is important because he isn't speaking specifically, and he makes that very clear in the second tweet about Amy Coney Barrett, just white colonizers. Some white colonizers adopted black children. They civilized, he's using air quotes around most of these words, they civilized these savage children in the superior ways of white people while using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial, while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity. And whether this is Baird or not is not the point. It is a belief too many white people have. If they have or adopt a child of color, then they can't be racist. Um, that in and of itself, Pete, we could do two hours on. Um, right. But But the flip of this that I want you to just maybe think about for a second is... What if they had adopted two white children? This white family of means adopts two more white children who are already privileged by the color of their skin when there are millions of black and brown babies languishing in poverty and starvation around the world, and they just adopt two more that look just like them. Wouldn't they be called racists for such a thing? That's the beauty of being on the left. Everything is viewed through the prism of race, and everything is racist if it is being done by your adversary, that is, somebody who's not on the left. Uh, the, the left has been doing this for a while. Kendi is the current personification of this toxic ideology, and I think it's going to be rejected by the American people. I think most people, even if they dislike Donald Trump and may not vote for him, know that this is sheer lunacy, but the problem is this, Bob. 
that while a number of years ago, no fewer than maybe five to ten years ago, this is not the kind of stuff that was broadly accepted in polite society. It is now being infused into the academy, in the media, and so many other institutions. Kendi, again, is a celebrated person on the college speaking tour, but he's also giving seminars to high school students. Um, I'm trying to remember, it's, there was a Virginia high school just last week that um, paid him thousands of dollars to come in there and give diversity training to their students. This is the kind of toxic poison that is being disseminated to our school kids, and a lot of parents are not aware of this. I know I'm going a little bit off track here, but you get a Kendi and this kind of approach where uh, whites are inherently bad. We saw the city of Seattle, for example, had a training where they took white employees, by the way, this is a violation of Title Seven and Title Six. but they took white employees and said, there's a video of this, you can see the tape of the trainer saying, all white people are racist, and rebuked whites for saying that we're not going to play this game of some whites can be good or they're, they're maybe not racist. They said, you have to understand, all whites are racist. This is being uh, done in public employment. It is being done in schools, K through 12. It's being done in colleges. Corporations are paying for this stupid stuff. This, it's more than stupid. It is incredibly toxic. And the results of this can be seen on the streets of Louisville, Seattle, Portland, and elsewhere. This is very bad. And you know, we, you and I have talked about this, and I want to go off on a tangent, Bob, but this is also the kind of stuff that you see in the 1619 Project that was on the verge of being introduced to, um, and, and is still pending in Ohio. It's not, the, it's not done yet. Continue to call the State Board of Education, email the State Board of Education. This kind of stuff needs to be stopped in its tracks. It needs to be stopped in the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing. But I think this kind of discourse, if it comes out during the confirmation hearing, helps Amy Coney Barrett, because I do believe that most Americans reject it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. They do, Peter. And uh, it's whether or not the Democrats who are going to be voting in the Senate uh, care what the people think. Uh, and by the way, since you brought up 1619 and the imposition of this type of thinking on our students in the classroom, when we come back, I'm going to show you that you don't have to be in the, ca- in the classroom to be indoctrinated in such a way. All you have to do is be in a high school football stadium. We'll talk about that next on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, it's 1025. Um, Peter, I've got many other things to talk about, including the debate tonight, but you just kind of led me into this. Uh, When you mentioned the 1619 Project and the other curricula that is uh, still being considered for Ohio's public schools, uh, with respect to critical race theory, the 1619 Project, America as a systemically racist nation, irredeemable, in fact, um, you don't have to be inside of a classroom to hear this now. If you go to a high school football game, as I did on uh, this past Friday night at Lakewood Stadium, uh, where my son's team played uh, Lakewood High, you got this as part of your pregame <clears throat> celebration. As the band plays, lift every voice and sing. Let us pause and reflect on the inequalities that our nation has faced since its beginning. The deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Tamir Rice, among others, remind us of the systemic racism that persists across so many of our nation's institutions and society as a whole. 
by acknowledging, discussing, and taking action to address these inequalities, Lakewood City Schools aims to be an agent of change, not only in our community, but in the world. We must all take a stand against racism. Let this be the moment when our children someday look back and say, this is when we stood together for change. All right, Peter, uh, again, I know we could do two hours on this alone, but instead I'll give you four minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's I all I got. I should get a Nobel Prize if I can unpack all that in four minutes. Um, first of well, all, you can, you know what, Pete, Pete, no, I take that back. I'm, you've got four minutes now. If you want to pick it up on the other okay. side of the news, you well, absolutely have my blessing. Go ahead. Let's do it in four minutes because everything is really concentrated in what was just said there. I mean, think about the last comment about let this be the time when we finally stand up for inequality. That person, um, <clears throat> I'm being very careful in what I say, but... That person must have missed the first 200-plus years of this country when people gave their lives to stand against inequality, when this country formed itself. I mean, the, the, the very fact that this country is what it is today is the result of untold sacrifices made by people. The fact that this is the greatest nation on earth must have escaped that person. The fact that she can say those things indicates this is the greatest nation on earth. But all this stuff about racism, they miss, uh, it's just, it's incredible what we are seeing today. You and I have discussed this big lie of systemic racism. And to use examples like Breonna Taylor and others, again, they're missing what the facts are, and they're doing so in many cases, I don't know about this particular person, but willfully and purposefully. The facts in Breonna Taylor showed that if anything, there was these individuals who were subject to prosecution, subject to the grand jury, were at incredible risk. They were being fired upon. They had a warrant that was a no-knock warrant, but they announced themselves. He can go on and on and on. Virtually every detail about the encounter has been wildly misrepresented to paint a false narrative of racism among cops toward blacks. We saw the same thing with respect to Michael Brown, and it's going to come out with respect to George Floyd also, because people jumped on the initial narrative without looking at the facts. You go through all of these things. Freddie Gray, I mean, it goes on and on and on, and after, you know, the old phrase about a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth can put its boots on, this has been manifest in the last four to five months when all of these episodes start out with a manifest lie of, oh, I mean, there's been, you know, racist cops do this. It's a function of systemic racism, all of which is an abject lie. And now when you have this announced before a football game, among other things, think of the venue, a high school football game, and this person says so, this thing so blithely as if it is accepted. You and I both played uh, high school football, and I don't recall at any time any such announcement being made. And I will tell you, you know, I've been black all my life. Things were actually, look, I was alive at a time when it was lawful to discriminate on the basis of race in employment. Okay, we are living in the greatest time in the history of the world, in the history of the United States, when it comes to, you know, anti-discrimination and uh, equal treatment. And back then, there weren't such announcements being made, maybe because 
People were sane back then, and everything wasn't overtly politicized. This is a debacle. This is shameful. Um, you know, if I had more time, there's just only so many moles I can whack. <laughs> you know, no, and believe me, Peter, I know, I, and, I, and I know I give you a tough job there to try to do that in short order, and you did great, uh, because you're right. We could do a lot more in-depth on it, but a lot of it, I think, would be rep- repetitive. Uh, but it needs to be repeated, so I'm okay with doing rep- repetitious uh, narration and commentary, because it needs to be drilled into the heads of people. Uh, this is a very dangerous thing, and the fact that we were subjected to that in a high school stadium was unbelievable, particularly since I happen to be sitting near three three police officers from the city in which I live who, who are fathers of players on my son's team as well. And they sat there and listened. You know the story. You know George Floyd, Tamir Rice, and uh, Breonna Taylor, the three names that they used, all died. Uh, at the hands of police officers due to confrontations with police officers with ver- for various reasons. So to say that that was systemically racist, their deaths, is saying that the police officers are racists, that the police, police as an institution is racist. So it was unbelievable to have this pollute uh, our, our ears and our minds before a high school football game, which is supposed to be a celebration of all things good. Instead, we get that nonsense. So we could go on forever on it, Pete, but I want to pivot to the debate. It's in our town. It starts tonight at 9 o'clock. Our coverage with Hugh Hewitt starts at 8 o'clock, and I want to get some thoughts from you on that as we continue, Peter, on AM 1420, The Answer. Now heard through downtown, through Greater Cleveland on 102.5 FM. Okay, 1036, continuing now with Peter Kersenow on AM 1420, The Answer. And I want to pivot our attention now to debate number one. Um, Pete, I've got a lot of questions for you about the debate. Um, But the biggest question is is the necessity of the debate at this point. I, I really feel like... So Americans are just dug in. You are either Trump train riding and and nothing's going to stop us, or you are, I got to get that orange bastard out of the White House. I don't care what we have to do. I, I just don't know that there's a middle. I don't know that there's too many people who are undecided at this point. Do you think whatever happens tonight and in the other two debates is going to move the needle at all? Do you think it will change any votes based on what we hear tonight, Peter? Yeah, um, first I want to concede, acknowledge and concede that I was wrong. I had predicted for months on your show that there wouldn't be a debate and uh, Biden's going to show up. So um, I'm wrong, uh, but it also makes me wonder um, what Biden has been up to and which Biden is going to show up today. But, uh, you know, that's a separate discussion. Um, I do think it moves the needle in critical ways because I saw several different polls that uh, concur with what you've just said, that I think most people are dug in. It's pretty clear. Most people have probably been dug in since 2016. I've never seen anything as polarized as today's American electorate. Having said that, um, the polls also show that there's at least 3% of the people, almost everybody is rigidly locked into their candidate already. But about 3% are not which is an extraordinarily small slice, but a critical slice in this election, because if you believe some of the polls, um, 
the race is getting incredibly tight. I happen to think, as I've said on this show, that I, I believe that Trump wins an electoral landslide. But, you know, we'll see. But if it is true that there are 3% that are persuadable, that's critical in an election this close. Now, remember back in 2016, all of those supposed blue wall states that Trump ended up winning he won by small margins. Pennsylvania, I believe, was 44,000. Uh, you know, uh, Wisconsin may have been you know, something like 23,000. I don't recall the exact numbers, but they were that narrow. Mm -hmm. And so if you are talking about a reprise of that in certain swing states, and Trump has already expanded the electoral map, I believe, to include perhaps Nevada and Minnesota, in addition to the other blue wall states that he took last time, then that persuadable 3% is critical. I think people are tuning in mainly to see which Biden shows up. I really believe that. At least on the Trump side, we want to see, okay, who's showing up? Because recall, he was pathetic in almost all of the Democratic debates, with the lone exception of the final debate one-on-one -on -one with Bernie Sanders, where I thought, my personal belief was, not only did he represent himself well, but he actually beat Bernie Sanders. Uh, that was an anomaly, because we haven't seen that Joe Biden in a couple of years. He has been going through a cognitive decline. There's no arguing about that, even though the media tries to cover for him. They don't pose any difficult questions to him. They don't even ask why he's not on the campaign trail. They're basically acting as his press agents and doing a very good job of it. But people are wondering, what is going on here? So for Biden, I, I actually think, contrary to what a lot of other people think, that the incumbent has more to lose than the challenger does. In this case, people are tuning in to see which Biden shows up. Can he just present a semblance of a viable candidate? Because he hasn't done so so far in the campaign trail, despite the fact that the media has been coddling him. Uh, also, it's the sheer entertainment value of President Trump. Uh, there's nobody who presents like he does. He is unpredictable. He is bold. He's brash. All those things. And he's fun to watch. Even if you disagree with him, it's the best show on earth. And that's one of the reasons why I'm tuning in. I mean, it's just fun to watch. So um, I do think it can move the lead. I think that subsequent debates probably completely a wash. I think this is the critical one. The first debate usually is. If Biden can hold his own, then we're going to continue to have a very close race. If Biden stumbles, um, if he looks anything, even momentarily, like he has done through most of this campaign, it's going to be a real challenge for, for him to dig out of that hole. Because I, I do believe that most of the electorate does think there's a problem with Biden. Uh, there's a very small cohort, as I indicated, that, you know, they may be undecided because they really don't like Donald Trump's personality. They acknowledge that he's produced maybe the best economy, not the baby, the, the best economy and so many other uh, victories for the United States. But nonetheless, they're persuadable. They're open to somebody who's not as confrontational and so, uh, you know, so, so much of a lightning rod. Um, it's going to be, um, you know, I, I think that if, if Biden shows up and does well, well, you know, he might be able to carry it through Election Day. But if he stumbles just a little bit, I think it's going to be a significant challenge for him to dig out, because I do think a lot of people are holding their breath saying, right now, I'm going to vote for Biden, but no one's going to risk or strike that. Many people will not risk placing the, you know, nuclear football in the hands of somebody who can barely count to 12. 
I think Biden's going to do well. Um, you know, a lot have been made of the fact that he is called. What is this new phrasing? I've never heard it before. Calling it a lid or calling a lid at like 830 yeah. in the morning, which means he's right. not doing any more campaigning the rest of the day. Um, President Trump has been flying from this city to that, to this, to that, to the other, to the other. He's all over the place, working his tail off, campaigning and sharing his message, but stopping off once in a while in D.C. to sign, you know, historic uh, Middle East peace accords. But still, uh, traveling all around, and Joe Biden is going into hiding. And so what's he doing? I have to believe they are doing just mock after mock after mock after mock after mock and preparing him for this thing. So I think that the low expectations, the low bar of Joe Biden here are going to be exceeded very easily, and we're going to have our a real tough time. Now, having said all of that, Peter, uh, a lot of this is going to come down to whether or not Chris Wallace presses him. And I'm not going to sit here and rip Chris Wallace right now. I'm glad it's Chris Wallace as opposed to Chuck Todd or somebody from CNN or anything else. Not that I think Chris Wallace is great. Uh, He's certainly left of center, but he's not as bad as those individuals are. And I want Chris Wallace to press Joe Biden on things like this. Have you ruled out expanding the Supreme Court? If you didn't hear that, the questioner off mic was saying, have you ruled out expanding the Supreme Court or packing the Supreme Court uh, under any circumstances? And here's Joe's response. I am not, and I I, I know you're going to be upset with my answer, but what I'm not going to do is play the Trump game, which is a good game he plays. Take your eye off the issue before us. If I were to say yes or no to that, that becomes a big issue. That's the headline here. It is a big issue, Peter Kersenow. It, it should be a headline. If you win the presidency and if, you, if Amy Coney Barrett is seated and if your party wins the Senate more specifically, will you pack the court? And he says, I'm not going to tell you. And the reason why is he's going to be hurt with one segment of his voters or the other. The moderate segment of voters who are pro-Biden will be upset if he says he's going to go radical and pack the court. But the radical segment of the Biden voters will be upset if he says, no, of course I would not. So he's saying, I'm not going to answer. And then, Peter, one more for you before you uh, dissect all of this. Kamala Harris did something similar about court packing when asked by Lawrence O'Donnell. Listen, if uh, Judge Barrett is confirmed and uh, the Democrats have control of the Senate next year and the White House and the House of Representatives, should the Supreme Court be expanded? Uh, you know, let's I think that first of all, Joe's been very clear that um, he is going to to pay attention to the fact and I'm with him on this 1000 percent pay attention to the fact that right now lawrence people are voting peter carson what the hell did she just say yeah, he said well, very directly are you going to agree with court packing or not they refuse to answer these questions and essentially are telling the voters we don't have to answer them just vote for us and on the other side once we're inaugurated then we'll tell you what we're going to do they they do have to walk that tightrope because the energy in the party is in their radical base that is making them do and say really incredible things that are damaging to their electoral prospects. So they understand they've got to walk that tightrope and not alienate normal people, ordinary people who don't like Donald Trump and so are receptive to at least voting for Biden, if they, even if they don't agree with all of his programs. The fact that, however, they won't tell you, in my estimation, says that they are, in fact, thinking about or receptive to packing the court, because the fact of the matter is when Biden, if, a, if Biden is elected, if he is president, 
he is going to be under enormous pressure from where all the energy in the party is, and that is on the radical side, and that is packing the court. So the fact that they're not uh, saying it, yes, from an electoral perspective, is it's to maintain their viability among both cohorts of voters, that is the radicals and, and the so-called normal people, but it also telegraphs that they are, in fact, going to go ahead and pack the court at some point after they get elected. I believe Chris Wallace is going to ask that question. I, I believe that Chris Wallace is a never-Trumper. I think he doesn't like Trump. But he also is a journalist who understands he has to ask certain questions because they are in the public discourse right now. They're, they're too important to um, ignore. And he knows that to maintain his current reputation as being, you know, at least one of the more serious journalists out there, he has to ask that question. I believe he will. To the extent he presses Biden on other things, you know, look, I'm agnostic as to whether or not, uh, I mean, if it were you or I, Bob, I mean, we'd have a host of questions to ask Biden, and we should, because he's the challenger. Trump has been subjected to more hostile questioning than any president in American history. Clearly, any American president during the uh, media age. And it's been unrelentingly hostile. I do think that is outstanding deb debate prep. It's not formal debate prep, but it makes you very good on your feet. I've never seen a guy take just stand there and take question after question after question and maintain his composure. And that kind of mental agility is forged over a period of time that Biden hasn't been challenged like that. I agree with you that he's undergoing tremendous amount of debate prep, and that's why he's putting the so-called lid on his day at 9.30 in the morning. But that kind of, you're talking to somebody who debates like crazy all, every chance I get. When you get too calcified in your debate prep, it affects your mental agility, and it, it's going to harm you in debates. The thing with Trump is he has extraordinary mental agility that has been forged over a period of time. Biden, I think, is going to stay in his lanes. You're not going to see any surprises out of him. I do agree with you. He's going to exceed expectations. I've seen a number of analyses similar to what you just said in terms of he's putting the lid on so he can engage in debate prep, but also so he can rest. And some people have even suggested that he's trying to change his circadian rhythm a little bit so he is getting up later at, during the day so he can stay up. Uh, later at night, and he won't be challenged as many people who have diminishing faculties are later at night. So he is going to be on his A-game. I still expect that if it were a fair process, that is, the media was fair in calling balls and strikes, I think that the consensus will be that Trump prevails in the debate. I think he's going to acquit himself well, as he always does. A lot of people are going to be upset because Look, it's Trump, and he's going to engage in personal attacks. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's who Donald Trump is. For his base, it's going to be red meat. For those who are opposed to him, it, you know, they're still going to be opposed to him. I think that persuadable middle is really, that 3% is really waiting to see if Biden falls down. If he doesn't, then it's still going to be an ongoing electoral challenge. Again, I don't think it's going to dissuade from the fact that Trump prevails at the end of the day, because I do think if you look at the various cohorts, we've been doing this analysis, Bob, for a while. I know I'm going over, but they keep saying, you know, the race is tightening, but Biden still has a lead. Yeah, I think he's got a lead in terms of the popular vote. He may prevail in terms of the ultimate popular vote, but I think he loses electorally by a large margin because, among other things, 
The reluctant Trump voter of 2016, there are many of us, are no longer reluctant, and we're going to continue to vote for Trump. We're not going to go back. Anybody who voted for Trump in 2016 hasn't been disappointed. In fact, he's been incredibly impressed and satisfied and isn't going to go back to vote for Biden. Number two is, peculiarly, Trump, uh, I say peculiarly from the standpoint of the polls still showing that that, uh, Biden has got a lead, how is that possible when Trump is doing so much better among black voters than he did in 2016 and spectacularly better among Hispanic voters than he did in 2016 and is also peeling off the the suburban uh, mom vote that he lost in 2016. He's doing better among all those critical cohorts, especially in swing states. So something doesn't compute and you add one more factor, and that is the reluctant Trump uh, poll respondent. We've seen polls ranging from 67% to 38% of Trump voters or those who are undecided not responding to polls or some of them actually responding falsely. That is three to four times larger than those who are Biden supporters. So that skews the result. But I can't believe that normal people watching what's what's happening across the country, the riots, the protests, all of which, you don't see any Trump voters doing that stuff. That kind of stuff, I believe, doesn't compel people to vote for the party that refuse to condemn it and, in fact, whose supporters are part of the cohort out there sitting at tables among diners, destroying property, rioting. Those aren't Trump voters out there, and people feel at risk and want some law and order, and they know they'll get it from Trump. Yeah, that's exactly why Tucker, and I know you're on with Tucker quite a bit, uh, refers to all of those riders as just Trump, I mean, uh, Biden voters. He literally would just say, and over here, some Biden voters did this, did this. I mean, you know, because they are. You're right. Trump supporters, conservative uh, uh, voters are not out there destroying things. And it is a, it is a, it's a comedy uh, to, to listen to those try to say that, uh, uh, that uh, right-wing uh, militia groups are the biggest threat that this country faces. Peter Kirsten, I knew you'd break it down like nobody else could. Thank you, my friend. God bless you. Enjoy the debate, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bob. My honor and pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you, Peter. Peter Kirsten, on AM 1420, The Answer. Hey, real quick, a reminder before the break. If you have not yet uh, gotten your uh, pre-order of the DVD or the uh, uh, the on-demand link for Dinesh D'Souza's new film, Trump Card, you need to do that. This is the most consequential election since 1860. Seriously. The stakes are that high, battle lines are drawn, and uh, Dinesh's movie lays it all out. An expose of socialism, corruption, and gangsterism, uh, whether it's the creeping socialism of Biden, which we're all watching before our very eyes, or the overt socialism of Bernie, this movie reveals what's unique about modern socialism and what we can do to stop it. Watch TrumpCard.com, or rather go to WatchTrumpCard.com and pre-order your video on demand and your DVD. Do not miss this film by Dinesh D'Souza. Pre-order the DVD and video on demand now at WatchTrumpCard.com. That's WatchTrumpCard.com. Coming right back with the last segment after this. Okay, short segment to wrap it up, obviously. Reminder, tonight, the debate is live right here on AM 1420, The Answer, from the Cleveland Clinic campus, brought to you uh, in consultation and partnership with Case Western Reserve University, and live here, Hugh Hewitt has the pre-debate rundown and uh, prep for you at 8 o'clock, 
And then uh, the debate starts at 9, runs till about 10.30, then Hugh will come on after that as well. So make sure you get the best analysis of the debate right here on AM 1420, The Answer. I asked in the early part of the show, if you have a question, one question for Joe Biden, what would it be? And Glenn has been hanging on in Strongsville to tell us what that question is for him. So let's get him on here before we're done. Hi, Glenn, go ahead. Good morning, Bob. I'm listening to you just about every day. You can ask my wife about that. And I always be, uh, uh, enjoy being educated by Peter Kersenow. Uh, I'll make this quick. I know you have a lot of time. Uh, my question for Joe Biden would be, uh, Vice President Biden, what do you think of the three Nobel Peace Prize nominations for President Trump, and what would you do to maintain the peace in the Middle East? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm so glad you asked that and brought that up. Glenn, that would be perfect. What a dig at Joe Biden. What do you have to say, Mr. Vice President? Uh, your, your number one on your ticket, Barack Obama, was nominated for the Nobel Prize literally two weeks after you were inaugurated. He was inaugurated. He hadn't done a thing and never got anything done in the Middle East other than to put money into the hands of the Iranians who want to wipe us and Israel off the map. But how do you feel about Donald Trump's three Nobel Peace Prizes for three and a half to four years of outstanding work in promoting peace across the Middle East and, quite frankly, across the world? Glenn, that's a great question. Thanks so much for the phone call. We'll wrap it up there. I I forgot to bring this up to you. For those who didn't know it, seriously, President Trump has been nominated now a third time three different nominations for three different accomplishments in advancing and promoting world peace. Simply phenomenal. And yeah, Joe's going to be, that's got to have the liberals twisting in the wind. Thanks to Peter Navarro. Thanks to Peter Kersenow. Thanks to you for listening and being a part of our show. Stay right here. Mike Gallagher's next. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.